I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Christian classical education is the cultivation of wisdom and virtue by nourishing the soul and the true, the good, and the beautiful by means of the seven liberal arts. Well, you've been sitting through four podcasts, perhaps by now. I thank you for coming back to the fifth. And you've heard that definition a few times now. And you've watched as I've flailed about trying to explain it. I hope it's been some value to you. You'll recall that in the last episode, we ended on the question, what is the classical philosophy's view of the child? And I suggested that the one that I accept and go by and believe in from the tradition is that the child is an image, a temple, and a person. And what I would like to do in this session is to continue thinking about that in light of the discussion about the cultivation of wisdom and virtue by nourishing the soul on the true, the good, and the beautiful by means of the seven liberal arts. Here's the connection. The child is an image. Well, an image of what is an image of God. And part of what that means is that he is by his very nature an imitation. He's not supposed to be original. Well, original compared to other people, of course. Unique, yes. But original, absolutely. My goodness. No, he's supposed to be like somebody else. And here's the tricky part of it. We've deluded ourselves, I think, as Americans. Because... If you are created to be like somebody else, then, as I read in a book called The Self, who was it that wrote this? Paul Vitz, maybe? He edited the book. If we are made to be like somebody else, then we can't be happy until we are. And notice that children are constantly imitating. They even imitate other people's desires. They imitate the way other people dress. They imitate the way other people sing. They speak the language they speak because they're imitating. It's what we do, and it's good that we do. The question is not whether we should imitate. The question is who we imitate, who we should imitate. And I think that's absolutely essential to education. If we're going to cultivate virtue in our children, then it is absolutely imperative that we give them virtuous things to imitate. That means that when it comes to what they read, we choose the best. It means when it comes to disciplines and exercises, we choose the most valuable. It means when we look at their own activities and we want them to behave virtuously, we show them how. Because we're images. We're also temples. And what it means to be a temple is that we are a dwelling place of God, that within us is a holy of holies, 
Outside that Holy of Holies is a holy place. And outside that holy place is a courtyard. And I suppose it's possible, I don't presume to know exactly, but I suppose it's possible that that courtyard is where we meet other people. The holy place is sort of an inner sanctuary where we maybe meet with ourselves and maybe those that we love the most. But I think the Holy of Holies is the place where only God and the person can go. There's an altar in there. There's the Ark of a Covenant in there, and there's the Law of God written in there, written on that heart. As educators, as teachers, as cultivators of wisdom and virtue, we can't forget that. We can't forget that the child is a temple, and we have to teach, the, treat the child like a temple. We have to do it more concretely than just saying, ah, he's really important, we should treat him with respect. Yes, that is true. But it's also true that he has a holy of holies that should be treated like a holy of holies. He has a holy place, a place for communion and fellowship where we should meet with him. And there's an outer courtyard and we should keep it clean, and we, could, we should keep serpents out of that garden. We should keep deception away. And sometimes we should be angry so that we don't sin. That's part of our task in raising children. But we have to avoid overthrowing their personhood because they're the image of a three-person God. They are the temple of a personal God. Therefore, they are persons. And if that means anything, it means mystery. And if we go through our educational process, and if we develop a curriculum, and we develop a pedagogy, and we develop modes of assessment, grading, teaching, curriculum, books, if we do all of these things in a way that disregards the fact that they are persons, we will harm them we may make them stumble. We can't do that. Instead, we need to nourish their souls on the true, the good, and the beautiful. And any techniques and methods and, and measuring systems that we use, they better be used with humility. They better be used with the understanding that they're not adequate that in order for the child to fit into this reductive system, he has to be less than image, he has to be less than temple, and he has to be less than person. One of my favorite authors on education is Charlotte Mason. And Melissa actually was asking this question as a, as a, um, a teacher of Charlotte Mason methods, and she was asking this question uh, in relation to that when she asked, what is the classical philosophy's view of the child? And the thing that makes um, the classical tradition that, that, that so firmly keeps Charlotte Mason in that classical tradition is her reverence for the personhood of the child and the realization, as she puts it, that the child feeds on living ideas. The child feeds on living ideas. What I'm contending is, therefore, we need to teach our children, we need to feed our children living ideas. And when I said at the beginning that the cultivate that the education is the cultivation of wisdom and virtue, the goal in my saying that is not to 
come up with ultimate generalities, but to give you what I hope is a living idea. When I think those thoughts, to this day, after saying that over and over again for over 20 years, to this day, I sometimes still get the shivers by nourishing the soul and the true, the good and the beautiful. Truth is a living idea. The good is a living idea. The beautiful is a living idea if you give it to them alive. Do you remember way back in the first session I talked about how we, when we see a dog, the first podcast, I talked about how when we see a dog, we see the whole thing. And then only gradually over time do we see the parts. And I was saying that, well, let me put it this way now. It's important that when you see a dog, you see it alive. Children don't like, unless they're boys, they don't like dead dogs very much. And they don't like dogs that are all cut up. They don't like things dissected, which is what analysis literally means. They want to play with the dog. That to me is as good a picture as you can come up with. Well, it's as good a picture as I can come up with for what a living idea is. When you give a child the idea of generosity, don't give it to them as a cold letter written on tablets of stone. Give it to them as a living action written on the heart. Give it to them in story form. Give it to them in picture form. Give it to them in a way that their senses can see it. Give it to them as a living idea, not a cold code. But a code, you see, doesn't always have to be cold. It can be a summary of something they've just encountered. And then it's alive to them. The crucial thing is, as you learn more and more about Christian classical education and about your child and about teaching and the classical philosophy of a child, come up with every way you can not to bring ideas to life because they don't need you to do that. What they need you to do is not kill them. Come up with every way you can to present the ideas that are alive to your child as a living idea. Ideas of energy. They bring change. And I'm contending that the seven liberating arts, the seven liberal arts, are living ideas, or even better, we could say, they're means by which you can give living ideas to your children. I suggested that grammar, logic, and rhetoric are arts of language. I talked about arithmetic and geometry as arts of mathematics. Now I've got about two minutes left by which I can talk to you about the arts of music and astronomy. And what I've been arguing all along is that the arts are all arts that bring harmony. So the question then is, what does the art of music bring harmony to? Well, any musician knows that it brings harmony to music, right? (laughs) It brings harmony to sheep's guts, as Shakespeare, well, as uh, Benedict called them in Much Ado About Nothing. It brings harmony to vibrations in the air. But music is a doorway, you see. Music is a doorway between the physical and the spiritual, between the sensory and the emotional, because what's more physical than music? It's vibrations on the ear. And yet sometimes it bothers us. And sometimes it gives us joy. Sometimes it it moves us to military formation. And sometimes it moves us toward romance. Music affects our souls so deeply. And the, you know, the ancient Greeks, they actually used music for medicine, which is being, it's having experience in revival these days. Music is the means, can I say the instrument, by which the soul is brought to harmony in, in sometimes non-conscious ways. It's also a way that by which the human body is brought into harmony with the world outside. 
and it's the means by which the human mind is brought into a higher harmony. That's the art of music or harmony. The art of astronomy, we talked, by the way, music, quickly, arithmetic is the art of number. Music is the art of number in relationships, or, or let me say it this way, in ratios and proportions, okay? Astronomy, the art of astronomy, not the science of astronomy here, but the art of astronomy is geometry moving. In other words, it's the study of shapes in motion. And the thing about the stars is that to us, from our perspective, they always look the same. They're, they always look like they're moving in the same way. And so that makes it easy for us to study them. But they're still moving and they're still shapes. And what we learn by studying the stars, and there's planets, which literally means wanderer. Planetos is Greek for wanderer. We learn from studying the stars, the planets, the sun and the moon, not just practical things about how to date, how to get around when we're on the sea. We learn how to extend the harmony of our mind still further. And the fascinating thing is that once we've mastered the arts of arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy, we're ready for the natural sciences, especially physics nowadays. And one of the fascinating facts of history is that almost every great scientist has mastered the seven arts. Probably all of them. I can't think of any exceptions. And most of the real significant changes in the sciences have happened because of astronomy. Isn't that interesting? Let me summarize. I know that we've only talked very vaguely, but that's what I promised you from the beginning. The seven liberal arts are the verbal arts and the mathematical arts. The goal of the seven liberal arts is at least partially to bring harmony to thoughts, body, mind, soul, and community. If we don't master the seven liberal arts, at least some of those harmonies will never be realized. I'll illustrate that with rhetoric. If you don't teach children rhetoric, they won't be good at making decisions together. And all the proof you need of that is to look at the American social structure, American society today. You cannot be a free people without mastering the seven liberal arts. I'll end with that. Maybe I'll pick it up again in the next session so I can defend that radical position. But now I'll wish you God's grace and his memory. May the Lord remember you in his kingdom. Thank you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.